and welcome to the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. The Battle of Gaza seems to have settled down into an attritional struggle in the rubble of Gaza City, with the Israelis making steady progress. The civilian population are firmly in the firing line with locations like the Al-Shifa Hospital in the thick of the fighting. Despite mounting international calls for a ceasefire, notably by French President Emmanuel Macron, that seems a distant prospect at this moment. At the same time, the war is dividing societies outside of the Middle East and opening up significant political rifts. In the US Democratic Party of President Joe Biden, there's increasingly vocal anti-Israel sentiment, something new in a party that, along with the Republicans, has traditionally been solidly supportive of Israel. In Britain, the hostile attitude of the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, towards pro-Palestinian marchers has cost her her job. Whatever happens on the ground, it's clear that the Gaza war is going to have diplomatic consequences worldwide. We'll be looking at what they might be and how they might figure in a possible eventual settlement. But first, Saul, how do you assess the progress of the IDF so far? Well, in purely military terms, they've made pretty steady progress into Gaza City. It's hard to get a fix on exactly where they are, but they seem to have penetrated right to the sea and are certainly in the vicinity of the Al-Shifa hospital, which is right in the heart of the built-up area. So I suppose technically they could be said to physically occupy much or most of the urban area, but that's not the same as controlling it. And what we seem to be seeing is what we predicted Hamas fighters using the rubble created by the airstrikes to their advantage to launch counter-strikes, popping up and disappearing again, possibly into this fabled network of tunnels, which the air campaign thus far does not seem to have totally destroyed. Hamas will have snipers who could prove quite effective. They're also said to have Iranian-supplied mines capable of destroying a tank and triggered by an infrared beam. Yet those who predicted that urban warfare would result in huge numbers of IDF casualties have not been proved right. So far, 44 Israeli soldiers have been killed. That may not sound like much, but in a small country, small numbers have a disproportionate political effect. Casualty figures play a large part in shaping this war, don't they, Patrick? Yes, that's right. We're, of course, uh, thinking here about the death toll on the Palestinian side. Uh, the latest numbers issued by the Gaza Health Ministry say just over 11,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 4,500 children and just over 3,000 women. Now, these numbers are a little out of date because uh, the ministry says conditions have been too difficult for them to count the numbers of casualties in the last couple of days. The ministry is, of course, Hamas controlled, but I think although there may be some degree of inaccuracy or exaggeration, no one doubts that the figures are of this sort of magnitude. Now, Israel can't really go on inflicting these sort of civilian casualties before the pressure on them to stop and declare some sort of ceasefire becomes uh, something they have to respond to. President Macron of France the other day said that, quotes, de facto, today civilians are bombed de facto. These babies, these ladies, these old people are bombed and killed. So there's no reason for that and no legitimacy so we do urge Israel to stop. Um, more significantly, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said as long ago as last week that far too many civilians have been killed. Now, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and his government have framed it all along that a ceasefire would, in effect, be a victory for Hamas. So that would seem to rule out a ceasefire until every Hamas 
figure has been killed, if you follow that logic. But it's not quite that straightforward, though, is it, Saul? No, and I'll come on to the elephant in the room in a moment, and that is, of course, the hostages. But it's worth considering a quote by Avi Issacharov, the Israeli columnist and co-creator of the television series Faudas, who said on Sunday that while Operation Swords of Iron, the Israeli response to the terrorist attacks of October the 7th, was a relative success in military terms, as I've just mentioned, And this is the quote, one cannot ignore the fact that before our very eyes, this is turning into one of the biggest diplomatic disasters we have ever known. Now, as far as the ceasefire is concerned, we've got to remember the hostages. Hamas still holds more than 200. Exactly how many, we're not sure. The original figure was about 240. The Israelis have now reduced that to about 220, saying they found more bodies. In other words, they weren't taken hostage. But, you know, we're talking more than 200. And they may well, of course, play a key part in bringing about some sort of ceasefire. Netanyahu has hinted that freeing them could open the door to some sort of pause at least. There won't be a ceasefire without the release of the Israeli hostages. That's not going to happen, he said. Now, indirect talks have been going on in Qatar, which also played a role in the freeing of four hostages by Hamas last month, about a larger release of hostages. CIA Director William Burns was in Doha on Thursday to discuss the hostage situation with the Qatari Prime Minister and the head of Israel's Mossad intelligence agency. So, as we've said before, you never say never in the Middle East. But in truth, the chances of saving all the hostages is vanishingly small. Hamas has already suggested that 50 have been killed in the bombing raids. That's unlikely in my view, as they're almost certainly being kept in the tunnels. But some, of course, may have been killed indirectly. Israeli governments more generally usually won't launch rescue operations uh, and will trade prisoners for hostages if it can't see a realistic chance of getting most of them out alive. But so appalling were the actions by Hamas on 7 October that I think this situation is completely different to previous hostage scenarios. At Entebbe in 1976, as I probably already mentioned on the podcast, the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said he would be happy with a loss rate of 25%. I say happy, you know, he was prepared to accept that if they got out 75%, that was a result. I suspect that figure is much lower or higher. In other words, they are prepared to acknowledge that they are going to lose more hostages. But the chances of a successful rescue, given that hostages have been dispersed, is very small. As for a deal, what would Hamas get out of it beyond a temporary pause? I mean, in the end, certainly the Hamas leaders, their last hope of survival is the fact that they control these hostages. But stepping back, how do you see uh, this whole scenario, Patrick, in the wider context of world politics? Um, I think whatever else has happened, this has dragged the world's attention back to this perennial source of grief and discord that's always had a disruptive effect that goes way beyond uh, the confines of the actual violence. The US and the international community so far, as you can still talk about there being such a thing, uh, will be doing so reluctantly, to re- returning to this question reluctantly, because it's such a tough diplomatic nut to crack. This is not so much because of the fundamentals of the problem itself. I've said this often before, and having lived and worked in the place, I always thought, as did my colleagues, that you know that there is it's, it's pretty simple, really. You just withdraw to these 1967 lines and then work out some agreement for living alongside each other. And, of course, there's a solution that lying right there on the table in the shape of the Oslo Accords, which were thrashed out after the first intifada, the end of the, which ran from the end of the 1980s to the early 
90s. But the problem is uh, really the environment, isn't it? The kind of political, social, historical environment, the people who are involved, the nature of the players who will actually be making these deals in an atmosphere of suspicion, hostility, and let's face it, hatred that really suffuses the political thinking of both sides. But I think both Israel and the Palestinians will have to at least show willing to the outside world when the dust settles over Gaza, which it will, and I think sooner rather than later. I think an absolutely vital prerequisite is that both sides hold elections as soon as possible. Now, if you look at the Israeli coalition government, it's essentially hostile to a a two-state solution. The Likud party at the head of it, that's Netanyahu's party, has never uttered more than lukewarm support for the idea of a Palestinian state, and then only under pressure from the U.S., Uh, They firmly support the right of Israelis to settle in the Palestinian West Bank, which, of course, is everyone, I think, agrees is a massive obstacle to the idea of a two-state solution. And some of their far-right partners in the coalition, parties like Odsma Yehudit, have always advocated a one-state solution. Now, that's an Israeli state that stretches from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. So the notion of from the river to the sea is not exclusive to Hamas, though it must be said that their version of it is implicitly genocidal, whereas the Otsma Yehudit one is not. It would just mean there would be no Palestinian state. Anyway, there can be no way forward without a new government. I think everyone agrees. Netanyahu is finished. And so there needs to be a new administration with a mandate uh, to actually carry forward some sort of proposal for peace. And of course, the same thing's got to happen on the Palestinian side, where there have been no elections in the West Bank uh, since 2006. But it's not just about the Israelis and, and the Palestinians, is it? What happens there has always been very, very closely linked to US foreign policy. That's right, it has. But I think Israel is going to have to increasingly deal with the fact that the old bipartisan Democrat-Republican consensus supporting Israel through thick and thin cannot be completely relied on in the future. And this is a big deal for them because Israel relies hugely, both militarily, economically and diplomatically, on American backing. As we referenced earlier, there are real tensions inside the Democratic Party. That's the party in power, of course, with elements voicing strong criticism of Israel. The most vocal is Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian-American who has been attacked by the Republicans for supposedly promoting false narratives about the Hamas massacre. Some 22 Democrats actually voted with the Republicans against their colleague in a motion of censure against her last week, which shows just how deep the rift runs. But Rashida Tlaib is by no means a lone voice. Polling from Gallup, published in March, showed that for the first time in more than two decades, Democrats sympathise with Palestinians more than Israelis. Research also suggests that younger members of the party are much less supportive of Israel than their elders. Joe Biden's support is rock solid, so for the moment this shift is not a pressing issue, but in the long term it might be. And that's something that we will be seeing everywhere, I think. Uh, European countries have increasing numbers of Muslim voters who naturally tend to side with Palestine. And this is something politicians are already having to take account of. There was a huge backlash when the Home Secretary here in the UK, Suella Braverman, characterized demonstrations calling for a ceasefire as, quotes, hate marches. And she raised fears that uh, these Palestinian, pro-Palestinian demonstrators would try and disrupt last weekend's armistice ceremonies at the Cenotaph in central London. 
Well, they were disrupted, not by pro-Palestinians, but by white right-wing thugs, the sort of people who one would imagine would enjoy Suella Braverman's anti-immigrant rhetoric. Well, Suella has now been given the heave-ho. Nonetheless, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has not followed Emmanuel Macron in calling for a ceasefire, but is loyally following the White House line. Uh, the Biden has made it very clear that uh, whatever the Israelis say on the subject is okay with him. Uh, but the point is, this is a divisive issue, and Israel can no longer rely on Western democracies falling on the right side of it from the Israeli point of view. Now, how much of that will affect their decision-making remains to be seen. Uh, when we're talking about this, though, uh, we increasingly have to consider the East as well as the West, uh, I think, Saul, don't we, in the, in the big geopolitical picture. I'm talking, of course, about the Abraham Accords. Uh, how do you think this is going to affect progress on that front, Saul? Well, it's worth refreshing listeners' memories. The Abraham Accords are American-brokered agreements on Arab-Israeli normalization, which were signed between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Israel and Bahrain back in September 2020. That means they have diplomatic relations and, as the name suggests, there's a certain fraternal recognition that they have something in common and shared interests in working together, Abraham being the shared patriarch of Islam, Judaism and Christianity. The big prize, of course, was to get Saudi Arabia on board, and progress was being made in that direction. That's now been put on hold since October the 7th, which, of course, is one reason why Iran, which is deeply hostile to Saudi Arabia, is thought by many to have encouraged, if not ordered, Hamas to go ahead with the attack. The links are basically at the level of trade and cultural connections rather than political, but they are a step in the direction of nor normalization. And I suppose, Patrick, in my view, it's this trend, the Abraham Accords, that actually gives me some hope that uh, we can move forward on this when, as you say, the dust settles over Gaza. We've then got the issue of what happens in Gaza. And it's been very interesting this week that not only America, as we've said before, but also the UN are very keen that the Palestinian Authority takes the lead in some kind of post conflict settlement. But there was an interesting quote um, from some of the people in Gaza when this was put to them, what would they think if the PA, which effectively controls the West Bank, was also to extend its reach back into Gaza City. And their response was, or at least one person who was interviewed said, this is something for the Gazans to decide. And we're not necessarily sure we want the Palestinian Authority back here. He wasn't necessarily saying he's supporting Hamas either. But, you know, that's the kind of thorny issue we're left with. The Palestinian Authority is seen by many, both in the West Bank, and also in Gaza as, you know, the leaders as very corrupt. So they're not necessarily sure they want them there. So there are all kinds of issues as to who's going to control Gaza after all of this. But it is a key issue because it will determine whether we can make any progress on these so-called Abraham Accords that were, you know, as I've already said, heading in the right direction before all this began. Yeah, they, they are a fascinating development, aren't they? Um and I think you're right not to suggest that they're, they're kind of they've been derailed in any significant way. I think for the time being, clearly the signatories to it and everyone, indeed, in the Middle East, in the Arab Middle East, in the Islamic Middle East, have to take account of popular feeling, which is run always runs very high about Palestine. So uh, they've they've got to kind of listen uh, to the voices on the street, if you like. But having said that, I think the history of the thing shows that the surrounding Arab states 
and indeed Iran have always played a very cynical role in all this. They, they, they do pay lip service to the idea of Palestine, but when it comes to actually practically supporting the creation of a Palestinian state, they haven't very done very much in, in recent years. Now, I think the question of Saudi Arabia is, is crucial in all this. Now, Saudi was sort of edging towards the embrace of the Abraham Accords, but I think this will actually slow the process down. But I think in the long term, Saudi Arabia, particularly under the leadership of Mohammed bin Sultan, MBS as he's known, have a real interest in promoting it. Now, MBS doesn't just see himself as a local player. He sees himself as a historic figure. He sees himself as a world player. And getting into an alliance which sort of boosts his international standing, I think, will will be attractive to him. Also, in practical terms, it means that he'll have a very strong ally in Israel. That combination of Israel uh, and America, of course, Saudi has always enjoyed very good relations with America, will put him in a very good place vis-a-vis Iran. So there's a shared enemy there, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Both are at daggers drawn, essentially, with Iran. Um, but I think there's lots of practical problems in the way of, of, of that actually happening. And, and one of the key ones, of course, is the status of Jerusalem. Now, you've got to remember that the Saudis are the custodians of the two holiest places in Islam, that's Mecca and Medina, and the third holiest place is Jerusalem. So the status of Jerusalem has always been a massive problem in, in trying to resolve the, the, this geographical issue, if you like, of, of the Israel-Palestine question. Uh, there have been various attempts in the past to, uh, the first UN proposal was to have it as a corpus separatum, as they called it, which was, meant it was under international control. But to maintain his position uh, in the Islamic world, Mohammed bin Sultan would have to get some sort of Arab control of East Jerusalem. That's the Arab half of Jerusalem. And in the present circumstances, that's not going to happen because Likud and the coalition partners are dead set against it. They claim the whole of Jerusalem for Israel. So there's a long way to go before Saudi Arabia will be properly on board. But having said all that, I do think that the trend is a positive one. And I like to think at least that uh, these dreadful events of since October the 7th are not going to completely put the kibosh on that. I like the way, Patrick, that we seem to pivot uh, depending on which podcast we're, we're talking about. So when it comes to Ukraine, I tend to be the optimistic one uh, and it's vice versa for Gaza. But but that's no bad thing. Well, that's it for uh, the first half of today's programme. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, we've had a really good crop of questions this week. Uh, people, as we've said before, feel very passionately about this issue, but they've also thought deeply about it. And there's lots of kind of thought-provoking proposals and questions that they raise in their emails to us. So we're going to open with Peter Carlsone from Norway. And he says, this is something that, that really does uh, crop up in the wake of the, not revelation, because the news was already known about how Israel had in the past, or in the, some years ago now, had initially encouraged the growth of Hamas, but it seemed to be a sort of a relatively benign organization which would cause trouble for the PLO. Uh, so they basically promoted uh, this Islamic organization in order to undermine the secular PLO. This is way back in the, in the 1980s. Now, his question is, I couldn't help thinking when he heard about that, of how Mujahideen in Afghanistan were first supported by the U.S., during the USSR's war there, Mujahideen warriors later joined Al-Qaeda and turned out as enemies of the US 
with American training and support. Your enemy's enemy isn't necessarily your friend. Now, what Peter's question is, is not about uh, the Middle East, but about Ukraine. He says, do you think that the same thing could happen with the different groups now fighting in Ukraine, and particularly the Azov Brigade, but also the Western citizens who volunteered as soldiers? Do you think Ukraine and the NATO governments are considering this risk. What do you, what's your reaction to that, Saul? I doubt they're taking the risk of the Azov Brigade and the International uh, Legion that seriously in terms of sort of some kind of post-conflict issue. The Azov Brigade's been in the news this week, actually, because uh, I think everyone remembers how stoically and toughly it fought in defense of Mariupol. But of course, the Russians were saying and are still saying that it was kind of riddled with fascists and, and, and the far right. I think that's Russian propaganda for the most part. There's no doubt that some of the original leaders of the Azov Brigade had far right sympathies. But the average soldier and certainly some of the uh, guys who were released by the Russians in a prisoner swap not that long ago. Well, they're already back in the front line. And there was an interesting interview with some of them this week in, in which they were saying, you know, none of us have extremist sympathies. We, we, we just believe in fighting for Ukraine. So I think a lot of the Azov stuff has, has been exaggerated. And certainly when we did some of the interviews with people who'd also been fighting alongside them at Mariupol, the Ukrainian Marines, they were saying the same thing. Uh, they'd been besmirched and there wasn't a, a lot in it. Foreign volunteers, could some dodgy characters be out there? No question. Uh, you know, we've, we've already mentioned the fact that some of the British uh, international volunteers, well, one in particular, was murdered by his fellow soldiers. So, you know, this sort of war, in, uh, when volunteers are concerned, you'll always get some dodgy, nasty bits of work. But whether as a body they're going to uh, pose a threat sort of long term as terrorists hanging around in Ukraine, I, I doubt that's really going to be a long term issue. But it, but it is a good question to ask, Peter, because, uh, you know, clearly it's been an issue with the Mujahideen and, and, and also with Hamas before now. Now, Peter goes on to ask a second question, which you can have a go at, Patrick. He says, I like your new focus on the ongoing war in Gaza. I wonder, are there voices among right-wing Israelis that ask the question, is the hard response to Hamas's attack on 7th of October the best in the long term? In other words, you know, should they really be operating in such a tough and brutal fashion in their response? I mean, he goes on to say, Israel's security is to a larger extent based on their most important ally, the US. Will the US be the world's leading superpower in 20 or 50 years? If not, how will that affect Israel's security when surrounded by enemies? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be right-wing Israelis who are asking that question. Uh, I think it's more likely, Peter, I think it's more likely to be more you know, liberal Israelis who will be wondering that. I think right-wing Israel, which is a considerable part of Israel these days, will be uh, right behind Netanyahu, at least for the time being. I think his, like I was saying earlier, I think his standing has pretty much uh, collapsed it was already in steep decline before all this began, and it's, this certainly has, has knocked out the final supports from under it, I would say. But yeah, I think there, there are people who will be asking that question. It's a good one to ask. This is a, a big consideration. Okay, for the near future, I think American support, despite what we were saying about the rifts inside the, the uh, Democratic Party, is pretty rock solid. Biden you know, has always been a big supporter of Israel. And if Trump uh, wins the next election, he's always been pretty solid in his support as well. Uh, we were talking about the Abraham Accords. His son, son-in-law, rather, Jared Kushner, uh, was one of the main players in brokering those accords. But there is a general view. I think uh, the US uh, is not what it was. It does seem to be entering a phase of decline. This is what happens to all great empires inevitably. 
So I think it would be unwise to assume long-term U.S. unquestioning support for Israel. The next email is from Max, and and he poses a sort of fascinating scenario uh, by saying, I was interested in seeing that President Macron had tried floating the idea of an international coalition against Hamas and would be interested in your opinions on on the alternative paths that Israel could have pursued with a consideration of the historical perspective of how ISIS were tackled alongside how peace has been achieved in Northern Ireland or Colombia with FARC. FARC. Is there a world in which Israel paused before retaliating and created a coalition to help take on Hamas, similar to the approach the US had in Afghanistan post 9-11, whilst learning the lessons of having a clear end goal and an exit strategy? Not really much to ask there, Max. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the broader question is a really interesting one, isn't it, Patrick? And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we, we may well be saying this, but far better, going back to the Abraham Accords, for Israel to have tried to take advantage of some of the contacts and links it had with more moderate Arab countries, should we say, in the Middle East, and used, you know, the possible long-term scenario of a two-state solution to uh, find a way to deal with Hamas. But of course, that's begging the question of whether or not there was enough willing in the Israeli government as it stands at the moment, which you've already pointed out, Patrick, which is not generally that receptive to a two-state solution to, you know, to move in that direction. So that, I think, was the sticking point. And the other big issue is when you have a, a massive security lapse like Israel had with the October the 7th attacks, you look weak. And the first thing you need to do is look strong and you need to look strong by a robust military response. So you know, in many ways, Netanyahu had no option but to take the tough approach at that stage because his political career was, and, and no doubt still is, on the line. But it is a fascinating scenario. And in an ideal world, Max, I completely agree with you. That would have been a good way to go. Yeah, I mean, this is the disconnect, isn't it, between what politicians feel they have to do and what the sensible thing uh, would be to do. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Saul, given the the understandable in rage and grief that swamped Israel after the Hamas attacks, you'd have to be an outstanding politician to say, look, this isn't going to, revenge isn't going to get us anywhere. We're never going to defeat Hamas. We have to stand back and, and do something that will solve this problem once for all. I think you'd have been out on your ear, even though that would be the sensible thing to do in the long term. You wouldn't survive five minutes, I think, after having made that statement. And even though the US did not storm into Afghanistan and you know start firing off cruise missiles after 9-11 and took its time and did put together this coalition and then stormed into Afghanistan, in the long term, that didn't work either, did it? If you think about it, they were then stuck there for the next 20 years. They didn't succeed in uh, defeating the Taliban. It took them years and years and years to find Osama bin Laden. So, you know, it was a completely failed enterprise, even having taken the pause for thought. So uh, I don't think that's actually necessarily a good example to follow. Uh, We've got Stefan from Vienna in Austria says, thanks for the great work you are doing. Well, thanks, Stefan. It's always good to hear. And he's returned to this question of proportionality. We had a listener from Israel last week, who raised uh, this subject of proportionality, saying it was basically saying it was a kind of not absurd, but but a kind of unhelpful, shall we say, concept. Now, Stefan provides us with a definition of proportional response, which is the one that the International Red Cross uh, worked to. And it says, the principle of proportionality prohibits attacks against military objectives, which are expected 
to cause incidental loss of civilian life, injury to civilians, damage to civilian objects, or a combination thereof, which would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. Well, that seems pretty clear to me what that means. And Stefan says, well, according to that definition, that's definitely not going back and committing a one-to-one atrocity matching the Hamas crimes from October the 7th. So he's really taking issue with our earlier email uh, from Israel uh, saying that, you know, there is a pretty clear definition of what proportionality means, and that is not not what is happening here in Gaza. What's your thoughts about that? Sort of? Yeah, no, I'm, I agree with Stefan. It's it's not a, you know, it's not a, a case of one for one, uh, as our Israeli listener would have it. Uh, and there does seem to me to be a pretty clear difference between carrying out a, a legitimate military action and one that incidentally causes an excessive amount loss of life to civilians, which I think all of us would agree is happening in Gaza at the moment. We understand why it's happening, Patrick. We sympathize with the Israeli argument, or at least I do, that Hamas deliberately uses hospitals and other places to set up their command centers underneath because obviously it feels they'll be most protected and they can say, well, you can't attack a hospital. There's no question that they're capable of doing that and probably are doing that in Gaza City. But it also strikes me that it's the Israeli Defense Force's responsibility to find a way to deal with uh, Hamas without this uh, excessive cost of human life at the same time. And just saying that the Hamas uh, is using hospitals as a kind of human shield is not a good enough excuse for killing, in my view, huge numbers of civilians at the same time. You know, it's an incredibly emotive subject. We've had I think, uh, to our credit, people accusing us of sympathising with both sides, or not sympathising, but being biased in our reporting of both sides in this conflict. And that tells me uh, we're doing a pretty good job, frankly, which is trying to balance out these two scenarios. Yeah, and no, I think that's absolutely right. Now, this is what I'm going to say next is not in any way used as a justification for what the IDF uh, are doing in Gaza. But you have to remember that, you know, in, in 21st century warfare with incredible power of weapons, you know, the battlefield confusion, all the rest of it, civilians get killed in massive numbers as never before in in the history of warfare. Um, I was just thinking back to uh, what happened in Iraq when the Allies invaded Iraq, carrying this banner of you know moral certainty and all the rest of it. And I was just trying to pin down numbers for how many civilians were killed or how many people were killed uh, in that Iraq invasion of two, 2003? And the answer is no one really knows. But uh, the Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs at Brown University has tried to get to the bottom of this. And they do say that um, between the invasion of 2003, and I think this was up to March 2023, 280,771,200 two, and 15,190 people have died from direct war-related violence caused by the United States, its allies, the Iraqi military and police, and the opposition forces from the time of the invasion. Uh, So, you know, most of these people, these are all Iraqis, uh, civilians, and they've occurred through aerial bombing, shelling, gunshots, suicide attacks, fires started by bombing, etc., etc. Many others have died from which are not listed here, died from diseases uh, resulting or 
privations resulting from all this. And of course, that's not even including all the, all the many, many, many more who've been injured. So, you know, modern war has appalling consequences for the civilian population, whether you're in Gaza or not. So yes, the IDF should definitely refine its tactics, take seriously its supposed doctrine of the purity of arms, but so should everyone else. Okay, moving on. We've got a, a question from Shane from Canada. Uh, he starts off by saying, love the podcast, always look forward to new episodes. Please don't listen to the naysayers about changing gears and covering both the Ukraine and Gaza conflicts. I really enjoy the historical context you guys are able to give on the conflict, as otherwise it's easy to get wrapped up in the narratives that are pushed by various groups and the media. A little knowledge and context can go a long way. Now, his question is about post-conflict rebuilding of Gaza. Obviously, they are destroying large parts of Gaza City by the day, and the amount of civilians that are going to be homeless after the dust settles is going to be staggering. I only have one example of two opposites, but I hope you find it relevant. If you compare the end of both world wars in Germany, can we see the effect of assisting the rebuilding of your former enemy to be the key to lasting peace? Germany emerged from World War I bitter and full of resentment that helped lay the seeds for the next conflict. Uh, but through the Marshall Plan, they emerged, that's of course after the Second World War, they emerged as an economic powerhouse, closely allied with their former enemies. Do you believe that Israel's more blunt force tactics are going to cause them more pain in the long run as the world looks to them to aid in the rebuilding of Gaza? It seems to me that they are going for the very short-term gain at the cost of a massive rebuild and laying the seeds for the next Hamas-style group of extremists. Can you foresee any eventuality with the current scope of the conflict where they aren't causing themselves more long-term resentment from the Palestinian political opinion? Um, no, I can't, uh, is the <laughs> simple answer to that. I mean, it's a very good question. And actually, it leads on to something else, which I think is quite interesting, Patrick, which is that could there be something like the Marshall Plan organized by if not necessarily entirely funded by israel that would you know help heal the wounds to a certain extent to get the gaza strip the west bank hopefully too set up as some kind of you know economically viable state that can operate alongside israel i know it sounds idealistic but it is something you think is possible isn't it and this idea of some kind of marshall plan that at least has the uh, you know the support of israel could be one way to help going about that couldn't it I think it's all we were entering utopian territory here, aren't we? We really are. First of all, that Israel's going to pay for it. Secondly, that the Gazans, Gazans are going to say thank you very much. Yes, we're now ready to uh, to um, be good boys and to behave as you want us to. You know, Israel will always want some degree of control over Gaza, even in the years after it evacuated. There are always massive restrictions on on Gaza actually turning into a viable economic state for the start. You need your a port. The Israelis were never going to allow the the Gazans control over their own uh, sea access. Uh, they'd see that as a way of sort of getting weaponry and they'd see it as a security threat. Ditto air. There was never going to be a, an airport in Gaza that was going to be... I think there was might have been talk about it at one time, but certainly it never came to anything. The coming and going from Gaza into Israel was always going to be restricted, uh, heavily restricted by the Israelis. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and that was in, in the days of hope. So I think, this, you know, there's, something's got to happen with the psyches of, of, of both the protagonists here uh, to get anywhere near uh, this being a sort of viable plan. So I'm afraid 
looking to the past for inspiration doesn't really get you very far on this one. I think in the case of Germany, the reason that, that, that Germany was ready to accept that you know they had to go forward, accept the, the American money from the Marshall Plan and basically rethink what Germany was and what its relationship was going to be like with its neighbors was because they had been the aggressors in this one. You know, they, they had actually tried to realize this um, you know, ultra-nationalist dream of just grabbing everything around them. They wanted to make Germany a great world, the greatest world power. And when that ended so disastrously, they were forced to think again. I don't think we've got the same situation here in Gaza. Not all the messages coming in are complimentary. Uh, and we've got an interesting one, which uh, goes back to this uh, proportionality issue, Patrick, but also the kind of suggestion that uh, we're biased in some way. And I think it's worth reading out because we need to respond to it. It's from Samir Kurdi in Amman, Jordan. He says he was a long-term or is a long-term listener, but he feels that our coverage of Gaza, especially when reacting to readers' letters, has been making him very sad. And he refers, of course, to us reading out the proportionality email, which we've already dealt with already in this episode. But he writes, I don't know what to do with what appears to be your unconscious pro-Israeli bias in your coverage. And he goes on to say, I urge you to be more mindful of your pro-Israel bias. Please, please give some pushback when a reader would like to call Hamas a death cult or tries to do away with the imperative for some sort of proportionality in this conflict or suggests that Israel, Israeli forces face an existential threat from a hodgepodge of actors, including the Houthis and Daesh. I know you would like to show some empathy with your listeners who write in, but appreciating and thanking someone for sharing their opinion and agreeing with that opinion need not be one and the same thing. Why amplify pro-Israeli tropes? Um, I don't think that's fair, actually, Patrick. I don't think when we read out the proportionality uh, email, we suggested for a second we agreed with it. I was the one who said that Israel is not facing an existential threat. So we're certainly not agreeing with that point. And I think we are showing empathy on both sides, as anyone listening to today's ep episode uh, will appreciate. It's an incredibly difficult scenario. We have enormous sympathy for the victims and the families of those who were caught up in October the 7th and, and vice versa with what's going on in Gaza now. So I don't quite know how we can uh, play a, a more effective middle game than the one we're trying to at the moment. Yeah, but I think this is, you know, this is a story which arouses so much passion that I think Saul and I both feel it's better just to let the facts speak for themselves. And I would agree with you, Samo, at a point you make in the in your email that uh, you know Israel does and ha always has responded with overwhelming force when it feels that it's threatened. And you know, I think here that the, the facts just to show this in the first intifada, two hundred Israelis were killed by Palestinians and 1,600 Palestinians were killed by Israelis. According to the UN from 2008 to 2020, there were Israeli deaths from political violence amounted to 251, whereas 5,590 Palestinian lives were lost. And so that we're seeing the same trend uh, here in Gaza today. Uh, but I think you know people can draw their own conclusions from this. And I think it is fair to say that Israel has to reconsider the way it sort of responds to violence or, or indeed, you know, when it's actually confronted with any kind of threat, how it actually deals with this or any challenge, should I say, rather than threat. Now, I saw this in the first intifada and there was no doubt uh, this was the, 
you know, the uprising in, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The Palestinians didn't have weapons. Maybe if they had weapons, they would have used them, but they didn't have any weapons. So it was basically a question of throwing stones at Israeli soldiers. I witnessed this myself, and my fellow correspondents and I all felt that the IDF overreacted uh, in virtually every confrontation that we witnessed. So demonstrators would gather and and throw their stones and burn tires. And after a while, the IDF would would open fire. And we often used to uh, plead with the kids throwing the stones. I remember once Sam Kiley, uh, who was then working for the Times, and myself offering money to the kids, uh, just saying, look, pack up and go home. But uh, these were lads of 12 and 13, and they'd smile and carry on, showing near suicidal bravery. So it was clear then that... Uh, that Israeli force was never going to work. This is all the way back in 1989, 1990. And so it's not only disproportionate force, it's also ineffective force. We've got a, a related email from Germany, uh, from Cologne in Germany, from uh, someone who's very uh, usefully given a pronunciation of his name, <laughs> phonetic pronunciation, and it is Joachim Sander, which I never would have got, actually. I would have said Joachim Zander. But anyway, thanks, uh, Joachim. Just a thought, he writes, concerning the question if you should keep reporting on the Hamas-Israel conflict as well. Of course, I applaud you for doing so, and I even think that what Patrick Bishop has said about it so far has been some of the most thoughtful ever said on the podcast. Uh, so thank you for that. And here's his suggestion. Why not keep up the weekly interview about Ukraine? I found that many of your guests brilliant and th frequently thought-provoking, also in how they differed from usual opinions. And after all, it's mostly the guests who do the talking in those interviews, right? Of course, the questions must be good. But then again, the interviewees tend to provide what one expects of them. They're thinking about the current state of affairs in Ukraine, solutions they see, and would like people to know about it in order to further them. What do you think? Well, my first response to that, Yukim, is uh, it sounds like you want to hear rather less of Patrick and I and more of our interviewees. But no, I mean, to be serious for a second, there's only so much time in a week that I uh, and possibly Patrick too can devote to the podcast. We, we've moved on to two podcasts a week. We've got a completely new series coming up in the new year, which we'll be telling you about shortly. So it is tricky to keep our eye on Ukraine, Gaza, and also do an interview a week. We might be, we've got a couple of interviews in the bag, actually, and we might be bringing those out at some point. So don't think we've given up on, on that slightly more in-depth view of what's happening in Ukraine. But for the immediate future, given that events in Gaza are still, you know, developing by the day, uh, we'll be sticking with the current format. Okay, well, that's enough for this week. Do join us on Friday when we'll be digging into all the latest developments from Ukraine. Goodbye. Goodbye.